But it is a joy to be here and to present this topic that we are going to share this weekend. Because brothers and sisters, God's church today is confronting a crisis of authority. And what we are going to discuss this weekend is only a part of the reality that there is in fact an objective standard of right and wrong that is to measure all of human culture, all of human opinion, all of human scholarship, and all of human experience. And that is why we are beginning with a discussion of what has happened in history when the prophetic gift has been slighted. Well, he came to the throne of Judah at one of the most critical times in the history of God's people. His father, as many of you may remember, was good King Josiah, one of the greatest religious reformers in the biblical record, whose otherwise glorious reign ended abruptly in an ill-chosen battle with Egypt, which he had been told by God to avoid. Unfortunately, however great and godly a spiritual leader Josiah was for the nation, it appears that his leadership and godly example, for some reason, did not extend to his home. The inspired record does not tell us why, as in the cases of such as Aaron and Eli and Samuel. We don't know why Josiah's children turned out the way they did. But the three sons we read about in the Bible who succeeded him on the throne were all wicked. And from the inspired account, it seems that Jehoiakim was the worst of them all. And if you think the biblical record regarding this king's life is bad, you might want to read some of the extra-biblical Jewish historians who record some of his misdeeds to an extent that I would not repeat here this evening. This man, if even half of what has been written about him is true, was one of the worst monarchs that God's people ever had. The idolatry that his father had purged from the land, Jehoiakim brought back. Social injustice became widespread. The Bible tells us how Jehoiakim built a palace for himself by cruel and oppressive means. In the words of Jeremiah, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong. And you know, folks, I think that applies today as well. That useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. And you know, folks, when people today refuse to give workers their just due, that sort of behavior is condemned in the holy word of God. Speaking directly to this wicked king, the prophet declared... But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Apparently the violence committed by this wicked king did not spare even God's prophets. There was a prophet, some of you may remember, by the name of Urijah, who apparently was delivering the same message that Jeremiah was giving. And he stirred the wrath of King Jehoiakim. And the Bible tells us what happened as a result. And there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this, this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. Maybe... It seems he was a colleague of Jeremiah in various ways. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard 
heard it, he was afraid and fled and went into Egypt. That was not the place to go. Because if you may remember, Jehoiakim was allied with Egypt. And Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, namely Elmathan, the son, the son of Achlur, and certain men with him into Egypt. And they fetched him Urijah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Quite obviously, this wicked ruler did not tremble at the word of the Lord. The counsel of God's prophets meant nothing to him, and he was fully prepared to kill these messengers whenever they rebuked his many misdeeds. But God wasn't through with Jehoiakim. He sent him another prophetic message, this one directly from Jeremiah. The Bible tells us how Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, was commissioned by the prophet to read a written message to the king and the people of Judah in the courts of the temple. From what we read in Jeremiah chapter 36, this message from God's prophet made quite an impression to the point where the princes of the kingdom asked that Baruch read the scroll of Jeremiah to them in private. Now, if you know the story of Jeremiah, you know that the princes of Judah, at least during the early part of his ministry, appeared to be more favorable to him than many others. So Baruch went to meet with the princes and read to them Jeremiah's message. And the Bible tells us what their reaction was. Now it came to pass when they had heard all the words, they were afraid both, both one and other and said unto Baruch, we will surely tell the king of all these words. Then said the princes unto Baruch, go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where you are. They obviously knew what the king was likely to do once he found out the whereabouts of these two men and once that he had heard the testimony delivered by Jeremiah. And so thinking as they did of Baruch's and Jeremiah's safety, the princes urged them to hide and to not tell anyone where they were going. Many of us know what happened next. When the king heard of Jeremiah's message, he demanded that the scroll be brought into his presence and read in his hearing. In Jeremiah 36, we pick up the story in verse 22. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. In fact, the Bible tells us that the princes urged the king not to do this, but he wouldn't hear a word that they said. Well, that wasn't the end of the matter. The king tried to find Jeremiah and Baruch, undoubtedly intending to do to them what he had done to Urijah. But in this case, God did not permit the testimony of his prophet to be cut short by martyrdom. Because the Bible says regarding Jeremiah and his scribe that the Lord hid them from the king's anger. And the next thing we read about is that a new scroll was written at God's command with the same message. Brothers and sisters, God's word cannot be defeated. Not by flame, not by the disobedience of the powerful, nor by the blood of its witnesses. And this reality remains as true in our postmodern age as in the days of Jehoiakim and Jeremiah.
My friends, few messages come through as clearly from the sacred record as the fact that prophets have never been popular. From Noah to Isaiah, from Jeremiah to John the Baptist, from Moses to the Apostle Paul, they easily qualify as the most detested and the least liked of God's servants. And when the final pages are penned in the great controversy between good and evil, Ellen Gould White could well prove to be the least popular and most reviled of them all. Whether on the internet or in Sabbath school discussions, whether in higher educational classrooms or in the pages of various publications, it doesn't take long to recognize that Jehoiakim's hearth still burns, though in many different ways. Listen to the following Ellen White statement about her testimonies and the reference to what Jehoiakim did. This is from volume 4 of the Testimonies, page 180. Listen to what the servant of the Lord says. Many now despise the faithful reproof given by God in testimony. I, it, I have been shown that some in these days have even gone so far as to burn the written words of rebuke and warning as did the wicked king of Israel. But opposition to God's threatenings will not hinder their execution. You know, I knew the story, and I don't want to bring it too close to home, but this was a number of years ago, so perhaps it's a bit safer now. But I was told that there was a Bible teacher right here at Bakersfield Adventist Academy who left the church and took his Ellen White books and burned them in his garbage can just like King Jehoiakim. I am quite convinced that if today's technology had been available to him, Jehoiakim would no doubt have started a website. Well, this weekend we're going to examine the role and authority of the gift of prophecy. In particular, the gift of prophecy as manifested through the life and ministry of Ellen G. White in the writings that we often call the spirit of prophecy. The title of this weekend series is Ellen White Under Misfire. We're going to review in the course of this series the various theological and other attacks on Ellen White's prophetic gift, both in contemporary times and in the church's past. This is what our seminar schedule is going to be. Tonight, of course, it will be Jehoiakim's hearth still burns. Tomorrow morning, for the 9.30 service, it will be prophetic authority and the abuse of sola scriptura. You're not going to want to miss that. Number three, Ellen White and the Adventist salvation controversy. That one will be delivered at the divine service. In the afternoon, our title will be Ellen White Under Misfire, and after that we will have questions and answers, and I hope you and all of the friends you can invite will be here for that, because brothers and sisters, we're going to have an open and candid discussion. I don't care what the questions are, we will address them as best we can, as long as they are about the Bible and about the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy or any other issue of relevance like that. If you ask me what I think of the tax reform plan before Congress, I will don't, no doubt defer that. If you ask me what I think of a few other events in the secular political world, we will discuss that at another time and place. But anything that involves the prosperity of God's work, we will happily address. And then tomorrow evening, our final topic at the evening hour will be our supreme authority. 
Now, please understand that handouts of all these messages will be delivered after each meeting is over. And I understand the meetings are being recorded by audio as well as video. And I was told before the meeting tonight that they will be on YouTube. And I am very grateful for that because I believe these messages do need to go far and wide among our people. I pray that what will be clear to all when our series closes is that the prophetic gift God has placed in the Seventh-day Adventist Church through the ministry of Ellen G. White is fully and transparently worthy of the confidence and public affirmation of Seventh-day Adventist Christians in our 21st century world. To those present for these meetings and for those who will watch and listen from afar, I pray that the evidence will demonstrate in the words of the Apostle Peter that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. But this evening we're going to lay the groundwork of our series by considering five important biblical facts about the gift of prophecy. We've already noted how unpopular this gift has been through the ages and that Ellen White is in no way unique in being the focus of the kind of attacks that she has endured. But now we're going to consider five facts about the gift of prophecy. Fact number one, it represents an objective measure of right and wrong like no other gift of the Holy Spirit. Prophets are not consulted for the purpose of acquiring just another set of opinions. Let's stay with the story of Jeremiah for just a moment. When the, when the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah, took Jeremiah aside there in the courtyard of the prison, to consult with him what was his question. Do you remember? You find it in Jeremiah chapter 37, verse 17. Is there any word from who? From the Lord. Did he ask Jeremiah, what's your opinion? Did he ask Jeremiah, what is your best assessment of the current situation? No. Prophets are not consulted in order to get just another human perspective on something. They are consulted because they have a direct pipeline to the Lord, which the rest of us do not possess. Again, from the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, in Chapter 2, verse 1, where moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and this wasn't only true with Jeremiah. Look at how the Bible recounts the testimonies of other prophets. Let's look at Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Can you imagine talking to the leaders of God's church like that? But folks, that's what prophets do. Here's Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, What about Nathan? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. This is when, of course, he was about to go in and rebuke King David for his sin with Bathsheba. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Who sent Nathan? The Lord. He didn't just get the bright idea of telling the king that he was wrong. It was the Lord that sent him. And you know, I've often thought what that must have been like there in the royal audience hall when Nathan confronted David the way he did. I have a feeling that he did not ask for a private audience when he delivered that message. I have a feeling you had ambassadors from perhaps Egypt, maybe Babylonia, maybe Tibet, maybe some of the Greek city-states like Athens and Sparta and Thebes and some of the others waiting in line to see King David, probably wondering 
as Nathan was talking, I would imagine that courtroom was as silent as a grave. And I imagine those foreigners were wondering, when is the king going to have this guy thrown out and have him bite the dust? But they soon realized that Israel was a different kind of monarchy. That the king was still subject to the greatest monarch of all. Remember the prophet Gad who rebuked David for numbering Israel? 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 11, it says, The word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying. Remember the prophet Ahijah, who told Jeroboam that he would be king over the northern tribes of Israel. Remember how Jeroboam's wife, when her son was sick, disguised herself so that the prophet Ahijah wouldn't know who she was. Obviously, she and Jeroboam were convinced that if Ahijah knew who the child's parents were, he wouldn't heal the child because of Jeroboam's apostasy. But the apostate king and queen learned that you can't deceive a prophet. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 14. We'll find out. And, and it was so when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door that he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings. I'm surprised the dear lady didn't have a heart attack. Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith who? The Lord God of Israel. Anybody ever heard of the prophet Jehu? He was sent by God to rebuke King Baasha, the one who succeeded Jeroboam and his son Nadab on the throne of Israel, but turned out to be no better. You know, you read the history of those kings and God overthrew one after another and they never learned. Over and over again it says, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen to what the Bible says about this prophet. Once again, in 1 Kings, this one, this uh, passage is from chapter 16, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Beasha, saying. The same was true with Jonah when he was sent on his mission to Nineveh. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. <clears throat> now look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 23, 1, the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying. Hosea also, the word of the Lord came unto Hosea. The New Testament, by the way, agrees. Those speaking under divine inspiration are speaking for God, not for themselves. You know, every time people come to me and say, Pastor Kevin, what's your opinion on some religious topic, I say, you know, folks, my opinion and 80 cents will buy you a Hershey bar. I'm not interested in opinions. If we were talking about secular politics, that would be one thing. But when we're talking about the word of the living God to his people, we are not dealing in opinions. We are dealing with consummate facts. I like what the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say, you are entitled to your own opinions, you are not entitled to your own facts. I find myself wishing he were still alive. But listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. When ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men. But as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. First Peter, Second Peter, rather, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time, by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? 
the Holy Ghost. I read a book not too long ago where an Adventist author who is now deceased actually made the statement that sometimes prophets are simply giving their own opinion and that we need wisdom and discernment to be able to decide which prophetic statements are true and which are not. We're going to be talking about that in the course of these meetings. We do not dare engage in such an enterprise. Brothers and sisters, I hope we're getting the picture. Prophets do not speak for themselves. Prophets deliver the word of the eternal God of heaven. This doesn't mean, of course, that prophets can't have personal opinions. What it does mean is that these opinions are kept entirely apart from the inspired instruction that they give to the church. We do have one example in the Bible of an inspired author who gives his own judgment on a particular topic and who made it clear that, when he, what, that what he was saying was in fact his own judgment and not a command of the Lord. But guess what? He doesn't leave you to figure it out. He tells you right off what in fact he was saying and that it was not something he was given by God. Now we're speaking here, of course, of when the Apostle Paul gives counsel to the unmarried in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one who, that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. To my knowledge, folks, this is the only time in Scripture where an inspired messenger steps away from divine revelation in giving counsel to the church and makes plain that in fact he is stepping away from what God has revealed and is therefore giving his own judgment about the matter in question. Ellen White in her writings is very clear that none of her counsel to the church included her own opinions on any biblical or spiritual topic. Listen carefully to the following statement. This is from Volume 3 of Selected Messages, page 68. She says, Many times in my experience I have been called upon to meet the attitude of a certain class who acknowledge that the testimonies were from God. Now see if this doesn't sound familiar to you when you hear certain people speaking in God's church today. But took the position that this matter and that matter were Sister White's opinion and judgment. This suits those who do not love reproof and correction, and who, if their ideas are crossed, have occasion to explain the difference between the human and the divine. That's not a smart idea, folks. If the preconceived opinions or particular ideas of some are crossed in being reproved by testimonies, they have a burden at once to make plain their position to discriminate between the testimonies. Defining what is Sister White's human judgment and what is the word of the Lord. Everything that sustains their cherished ideas is divine. And the testimonies to correct their errors are human. Sister White's opinion. They make of none effect the counsel of God by their tradition. And I say, folks, people are doing that today, even now. Many are, in fact. Listen to this statement here from volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 67. In these letters which I write, in these testimonies that I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision. The precious rays of light shining 
from the throne. Now listen carefully to this next statement. This is from volume 3 of Selected Messages, page 70. I have my work to do to meet the misconceptions of those who suppose themselves able to say what is testimony from God and what is human production. If those who have done this work continue in this course, satanic agencies will choose for them. Those who have helped souls to feel at liberty to specify what is of God in the testimonies and what are the uninspired words of Sister White will find that they were helping the devil in his work of deception. Now please understand, folks, when Ellen White wrote common letters, she made it very clear that that's what she was doing. If you read her common letters to Willie, her son, and to other members of her family and to others, she says clearly, I am writing you a common letter. Just like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, I don't have a commandment of the Lord on this issue. We don't have to guess about these things, brothers and sisters. God has spelled them out. Here's another one. Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 64. Yet now, when I send you a testimony of warning and reproof, many of you declare it to be merely the opinion of Sister White. You have thereby what? Insulted the spirit of God. Folks, that's a dangerous thing to do. Now let's look at the second of our five facts about the prophetic gift. It is carefully protected by divine superintendence. Years ago in his lengthy attack on the investigative judgment, as well as the authority of Ellen White in doctrinal matters, Desmond Ford made the following statement. He said, because God's attention to matters is proportionate to their importance, he has exercised more miraculous superintendence over Scripture than over the writings of Ellen White. This is not to speak of degrees of inspiration, but rather degrees of revelation. I'm not exactly sure on what basis Ford made this particular claim. Certainly he offered no evidence from either Scripture or the writings of Ellen White to indicate this lower level of miraculous superintendence over non-canonical prophets as distinct from canonical prophets. Now we're going to speak at length tomorrow morning at the 9.30 service about the relationship between canonical and non-canonical prophets. But what we want to look at tonight is just how clearly, according to the Bible, God has superintended the integrity of the testimony of non-canonical prophets. Let's consider three examples, shall we? The first one is Balaam. We all remember his story, I am sure. We remember how he was hired by the king of Moab to curse the children of Israel. Balaam was, as we know, for a time at least, a true prophet of God. The apostle Peter describes him in this way. Speaking of those who have turned from God's requirements, he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 2, 15 and 16, which have forsaken the right, the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? And of course we remember the beautiful prophecy of the Messiah that Balaam declared, which of course drew the wise men 
many centuries later to Bethlehem. We remember it, I am sure. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So the Bible is clear that Balaam was, in fact, for a time, a prophet of God. Ellen White agrees. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 439, Balaam was once a good man and a prophet of God, but he had apostatized and had given himself up to covetousness, yet he still professed to be a servant of the Most High. The Bible record is clear that when God took possession of Balaam's vocal cords, the same way he had with Balaam's donkey, who I think was a lot more obedient to the Lord than Balaam, (laughs) that this was the last time God spoke through Balaam on account of his rebellion against God's purpose. He understood full well why he couldn't curse Israel, and he told the king of Moab the reason. So long as God's people were obedient to God's commands, their their enemies could not harm them. But once they fell into sin, they would become vulnerable to defeat and conquest. Balaam thus advised the Moabite king to seduce Israel into sexual immorality and idol worship. And we know the tragic story well. But Balaam's career as a prophet, as well as his life, came to an end soon thereafter in the way in the war, that is, which followed between Israel and the Midianites. Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, it says, speaking of this war, and they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain. Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. It's not a good idea to put yourself up against God's message. Now let's look at another example. This one, of course, is Nathan. Nathan, of course, is best remembered for his rebuke uh, delivered to King David after his sin with Bathsheba. But there's another incident in Balaam's prophetic ministry which illustrates just how closely God safeguards the integrity of the prophetic gift. Remember when David wanted to build a temple to the Lord? And he asked the prophet Nathan's counsel. Let's look here at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Then the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. But here we see an example of when a prophet didn't correctly understand what God had told him. So God corrected the misunderstanding and he did so immediately. Let's look at what happened here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it came to pass that night, God didn't wait, that night, that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We find this story recounted with a bit more detail in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 to 10, it says, The Lord said, or David rather, said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house under the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build an house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood 
upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. He shall build an house for my name. So here we see very carefully how God safeguards the gift of prophecy. Notice, Nathan gave incorrect counsel to David. For some reason, he misunderstood what God said. But God corrected him that very night. And he went back to David the next morning and said, Here's what the Lord intended me to tell you. Now let's look at the third example. This is the prophet who cursed Jeroboam's altar. We remember how this prophet rebuked the king for his idolatry and how he foretold the reign and reforms of good King Josiah and what he would do to that very altar. We remember the king's withered arm as he tried to harm the prophet and the prophet's prayer on the king's behalf. But we also remember, don't we, how the prophet disobeyed God's command that he go straight home after delivering his message to Jeroboam. Jeroboam himself, after his arm had been healed, invited the prophet to his own palace for refreshments. And the prophet refused. Let's see what we read in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way thou camest. The story goes on to tell us, as I'm sure we recall, that a false prophet met this man of God on his way home and convinced him that God had changed his mind. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't do that. The word of the Lord through his prophets is consistent. And the prophet who cursed Jeroboam's altar should have remembered that. Unfortunately, he did not. And as a result, he went home with the false prophet and was later killed by a lion. The false prophet went and found the body of this disobedient man of God and buried him in his own grave. And what the Bible records him as saying reminds us of the old adage that even a busted clock tells the truth twice a day. Even a false prophet sometimes utters a true prophecy. Listen to what he said after burying the man of God. In 1 Kings 13, chapter 32, For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Listen to what Ellen White says about this story, and it helps us understand that even when God's servants disobey him, God ultimately uses that to his glory. Look at what we find here in the book Prophets and Kings. Page 107. The penalty that overtook the unfaithful messenger was a still further evidence of the truth of the prophet, of the prophecy uttered over the altar. If, after disobeying the word of the Lord, the prophet had been permitted to go on in safety, the king would have used this fact in an attempt to vindicate his course of disobedience. In the rent altar, in the palsied arm, and in the terrible fate of the, man, of the one who dared disobey an express command of Jehovah, Jeroboam should have discerned the swift displeasure of an offended God, and these judgments should have warned him not to persist in wrongdoing. You know, so many times when I've seen a godly pastor or leader fall into sin, people will use that as an excuse for disregarding the good that that individual had done. 
In reality, as with the example of this unnamed prophet, what happened to him should have been a warning to Jeroboam, not to say, oh, look at what a hypocrite he was telling me what to do when he couldn't even obey God himself. The bottom line was, disobedience always carries a swift and destructive penalty. But far from repenting, Jeroboam made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Now stop and think about that for just a moment, folks. God's church today is being divided over the question of who is qualified to serve in ministry. Think about what we just read here from the Bible. Does it matter who serves before God in ministry? God said certain people were to be consecrated and others were not to be. Jeroboam disregarded that. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, the Bible says. But look what happened as a result. Thus he not only sinned greatly himself, but made Israel to sin. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, ordination to the gospel ministry matters. And how God has designed that it should function matters. God's word cannot be disregarded. Once again, we see how God safeguards the voice of his prophets. Let me ask you, what do all three of these prophets have in common? Nathan, Balaam, and the unnamed prophet who cursed Jeroboam's altar. What do they have in common? All of them were non-canonical prophets. And let, look how closely God superintended their work in spite of what Desmond Ford says. Now let's look at the third fact about the gift of prophecy that we're going to consider this evening. It is primarily a ministry to the church rather than to the world. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course. Noah is one of these, and Jonah is another. But most of the time, when we read the Bible story, we find prophets speaking to God's professed people and not to the unbelieving world. In the case of Noah, it is very clear that he spoke to both, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. Which leads us to the fourth fact in our list. The world through the ages has often treated prophets better than the church. Let's stay with the example of Noah for just a moment. And then we'll look at Jonah. Ellen White makes a very telling statement regarding those who were foremost in rejecting the preaching of Noah. Listen to this, folks. Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 95 and 96. The men of that generation were not in the fullest acceptation of the term, idolaters. Many profess to be worshipers of God. They claim that their idols were representations of the deity and that through them the people could obtain a clearer conception of the divine being. This class were foremost in rejecting the preaching of Noah. You know, we would call this today perhaps a third option. You've heard that expression before, I suspect. Over here, you've got Noah. He would be called a fundamentalist by some today. He had one extreme, no graven images altogether. And there on the other side, you had the other extreme, those who rejected the true God altogether. But now you've got a middle-of-the-road alternative. You keep the worship of the true God, but you use graven images to represent him. Let's go on and find out how these people represented God, or rather misrepresented him. 
As they endeavored to represent God by material objects, their minds were blinded to His majesty and power. They ceased to realize the holiness of His character or the sacred, unchanging nature of His requirements. In other words, folks, it was God's professed followers, not the avowed unbelievers, those that were offering human sacrifices and stealing their neighbor's wives, who were the most outspoken in their rejection of God's message for that time. When we think of the story of Jonah, the same fact obviously becomes clear. This was a time, let's not forget, when God's messengers were being routinely despised ridiculed and stoned to death by the chosen people themselves. And yet God sends Jonah to the world's capital city, a pagan metropolis of unparalleled brutality. You talk about ISIS and the way they treat their captives, the Assyrians did the same thing, folks. And, and yet what did these people do? They repented in sackcloth and ashes after 40 days of the prophet's preaching. I've often said that this was the most successful evangelistic campaign in the history of the world. You know, I was honored to be the first Seventh-day Adventist evangelist to conduct an effort in New York City following the tragedy of September 11. And I couldn't help but think, what would I have done if the entire city had repented from Rudy Giuliani down to the beggars in the subway tunnels. And if they had all come forward for baptism there in the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Reservoir in my neighborhood. Forty days of meetings and 120,000 people were converted. I just finished a series of meetings in West Virginia. And the local people are working with a few of the interests. Please keep them in your prayers. One of them is a lay pastor in an evangelical church in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Brothers and sisters, I believe we're going to see mass conversions like what occurred in the days of Jonah once again. Because God's people will have a message that the world, like the Ninevites, will hunger for. But it's very clear, isn't it? Prophets treat, prophets are treated better by the world than they are by the church. Now let's look at the fifth and final fact regarding the biblical gift of prophecy. God's people have never prospered when disobeying a prophet's counsel. A number of years ago I was shocked to read the following statement by a retired Adventist theologian who has since died, consider, consider, concerning Ellen White, this theologian stated, For many years now it has been recognized that the church cannot follow all her counsel. Says who? This is demonstrated in the fact that her counsel on managing hospitals and colleges is almost financially impossible to follow in the 21st century. The statement she makes need, the statements she makes need to be taken seriously, but in the end the gift of discernment must be used to see if the advice is practical given today's circumstances. Jeroboam would have loved that. So would Jehoiakim and Pashur and Herodias and all the rest of those through the ages have, that have been attracted by an eclectic, self-accommodating spirituality. But let me ask you, and let me ask those that follow the thinking of this particular theologian who is no longer with us, when have God's people ever prospered at any time in the sacred record when they disregarded the counsel of a prophet? When did the children of Israel ever do well when they set aside the counsel of Moses? How did Cain, King Ahab fare when he disobeyed the counsel of Micaiah? 
and went to battle against the Syrians when the prophet said not to. How successful was the career of Herod and Herodias after they refused to follow the counsel of John the Baptist? Tradition says that Herod Antipas was demoted soon after that and was sent into exile with Herodias, or actually she agreed to go with him. She was told she didn't have to. Seems like it was the only um, dignified and good thing that she may have done. She actually went with him into exile and cared for him, probably in Gaul or Spain. It's not clear exactly where they ended up. But they didn't do well after disobeying God's prophet, did they? And to bring it closer to home, brothers and sisters, when did the pioneers of Seventh-day Adventism ever do well? When did their labors ever flourish? When they disregarded the testimonies of Ellen G. White. Well, one thing is certain. King Jehoiakim didn't do so well after he burned that scroll of Jeremiah. Under God's direction, Jeremiah wrote the scroll again. And here is what he predicted under divine inspiration regarding what would happen to this apostate king. Jeremiah 36, beginning with verse 30. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David. And his dead body shall be cast out in the day in the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them. In another passage, Jeremiah said this about the fate of this wicked ruler. Jeremiah 22, verses 18 and 19. Thus saith, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is the testimony consistently in the sacred story regarding those who choose to set aside the prophetic word. Their fate has never been a pleasant one. And brothers and sisters, I have almost never known one to leave the Seventh-day Adventist church and to flourish or do well afterward. But tra tragically, Jehoiakim's hearth is still burning on websites, in Sabbath school classes, in so-called scholarly deliberations, and in academic discussions. But the guidance of God's prophetic warnings is still shining also. And the modern prophet declares regarding the imperative of adhering in these final moments of history to what God has revealed through her instruction. Consider this statement here from volume 3 of Selected Messages, pages 83 and 84. Men may get up scheme after scheme, and the enemy will seek to seduce souls from the truth. But all who believe that the Lord has spoken through Sister White and has given her a message will be safe from the many delusions that will come in these last days. Like the sword of Alexander the Great slicing through the Gordian knot, the eternal word of the living God dispels postmodern ambiguity with the declaration that we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we tremble before these narratives 
And we see what has happened to those who have been so bold and rebellious as to disregard the prophetic word. And we look at our own hearts and lives and we see that we have done the same. We plead with you for pardon, for transformation, and for consistency in our practice. That we will adhere entirely to the written counsel of our God. This is our prayer in his name and for his sake.